This podcast is supported by Amber Road, the world's leading provider of on-demand global trade management software and solutions. Amber Road's single on-demand platform automates and streamlines processes for import, export, global logistics, foreign trade zones, and trade agreement management. By helping organizations comply with country-specific trade regulations, as well as plan, execute, and track global trade, Amber Road enables goods to flow unimpeded across international borders in the most efficient, compliant, and profitable way. And now, on to the podcast. Enough of the warm, fuzzy aspects of the supplier-buyer relationship. Let's talk price. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. And this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. We're supposed to be living in a time when supply chain partners have achieved deep, meaningful relationships that go beyond mere price. And to be fair, there are some enlightened companies that have managed to get past the baser elements of a commercial relationship to embrace mutual goals and ensure long-term harmony. Still, there's that nagging question of price. And for the most part, the mechanism by which that number is determined is broken. So says a new paper from the University of Tennessee entitled Unpacking Pricing Models. I'm joined today by the lead author, Kate Fatasic, UT faculty member and graduate in executive education. Kate has done a tremendous amount of work in the area of supplier-buyer relationships. Here, she tells us why it's important to look beyond price to pricing models, which can result in true partnerships that bring value to both sides of the table. And we'll find out why so many deals today are myopic and inefficient. So here is my conversation with Kate Vitasic. Well, Kate Fantastic, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. How interesting. You know, uh, we've spoken so much in the past about the, the human element of trust and vested relationships, but I guess we still have to always come down to this question of price. And uh, you are one of four authors and, of course, three additional contributors to this uh, paper called Unpacking Pricing Models with some fascinating in-depth uh, intelligence on how to approach this issue. I want to ask you first, though, what is the problem with pricing and pricing models today? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First, uh, it's the fact that people focus on price instead of a pricing model. And the second big thing is that they rush to get to that price, and they don't realize that business is dynamic, and we really should have had uh, a better approach, a better process as we got to that pricing model. Is that why there are so many renegotiations and unsatisfied parties as a result of what looked to be a solid contract but then ends up somehow falling apart? 
That's right. And, and you think about it. So a price is what I say you go to Starbucks to buy your grande two-pump vanilla latte, right? So you go up, you look on the price board, and it says it's $3.27. Well, it, uh, as you know, business happens. Business is dynamic. What if coffee beans rise, right? So there's a, a, a drought, and the, the cost of coffee beans are going to rise. Well, Starbucks is either going to absorb the difference in what they sell that for and what they bought their coffee beans for, or they're going to come back and raise all the prices on their boards, right, because they have a profit target to make. Well, in any type of buyer-seller relationship, you have the same business dynamics. People are trying to hit a certain profit target. And when they put a price on something, almost always there's some underlying dynamics of some components that may change over time. Business is dynamic, as I like to say, business happens. And we need to understand and appreciate that versus try to just get to a price. Um, so especially in a long-term relationship, more like a 3PL or um, a type of a deal where you, you're hiring a warehouse, a professional warehouse service provider to do some work for you, you can't expect to have a price on a two- or three-year contract cost of living is going to raise. You don't know. There could be floods. There could be tragedies. You know, so it, it's, it's really burying our head in the sand to ignore the fact that the underlying nature of what's causing our cost structure needs to be addressed. And, and, and instead, we put a price on it. And we shift that risk to one or one of the parties. So certainly we do seem to see this phenomenon of cost creep happening all the time. Uh, what causes that? I guess you're suggesting a little bit about just, you know, the vagaries of, of life cause it. But should we be allowing for it in our pricing models then? Well, yes, we can't ignore it. But what we can do is understand the difference between controllable cost and non-controllable cost. And this is why I urge people to think of a pricing model instead of a price. Because if I have a price, it includes both controllables and uncontrollables. But think of it as, um, think of it as, uh, you know, in math, you have an equilibrium. At that point in time, when you've negotiated that deal, if you've got a price, you're at equilibrium for that day. And it's no wonder, Bob, that cost creep sneaks in because people come up with, uh, you know, what was unknown at the point in time of that negotiation now becomes known. We may need to change the work mix. The natural tendencies of business drive the underlying cost structure changes. And instead of ignoring them, we need to embrace them. And so it is very appropriate to look at controllables and uncontrollables. And I really like to encourage buyers to accept the uncontrollables. I'll go back to a wonderful case study that we had in the book, Vested, P, uh, how P&G, McDonald's, and Microsoft are redefining winning in business relationships. And I use this example, even though it's facilities and real estate management, because in the pricing model, you know, there's electricity. If I'm going to manage buildings and properties, we have to light them. Well, it's not Jones-Lang-Lasalle's fault if electricity triples. Right, So you can't push that risk. Well, I guess you can push the risk to the supplier, but it's not prudent to push the risk, that uncontrollable risk to the supplier, because Jones Lang Assault is going to have to guess at how much electricity is going to go up or not. And when they guess, it, it, they have to put a price premium. So it's actually better, Bob, for the buyer to take the uncontrollables because there's no markups. There's no guess. 
right? They're paying the absolute lowest they could get on the cost of an uncontrollable when they bear that risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I say, suck it up, electricity tripled. Yeah. The cost never seems to creep down, does it? So. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and so what we're trying to do as buyers is push that risk rather than saying, let's embrace that cost doesn't creep down, but let's work on improving our process and our cost structures. Mm-hmm. How can I how can I work to mitigate the risk of cost creeping up? So now what P and G would do with Jones Lang LaSalle is say, I'll give you an incentive if you can figure out how to make my buildings run more efficiency, efficiently, let's work on attacking the cost drivers and our car structure, not trying to bicker over a price that we don't really know what it should have been anyway because we're guessing. Yeah. Now, there are so many elements that make up a pricing model, and I'm wondering where do you even start from square one when you approach a, the beginning of a buyer-supplier relationship? How do you enter into a relationship that will lead in the direction of a price model as opposed to simply slapping a price on the, uh, on the transaction? Um, well, first, you have to really change the nature of how you look at the pricing and the cost structure components. And we want to use a total cost of ownership and a best value philosophy that is um, really embracing transparent concepts. And the reason why we like transparency is because it's the only way we're going to be able to see, physically see, both the costs that are on the buyer side and the supplier side. So transparency is very important because it's going to enable us to look at the full picture not just one party's, but the whole. That is going to help us get to a better total cost of ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a loaded word that can be, though, transparency. A lot of uh, parties can be get very nervous when they start talking about having to reveal their underlying cost to a partner. I guess there has to be an awful lot of trust uh, out there in order to make that work. There does, and that goes back to some of our original work on the concept of vested in that it is much better to work on building a few trusted, transparent, vested relationships than it is to have a lot of transactional, non-transparent. It's almost like you're playing the market. So, Bob, do you want to go and play the market to get the best deal? Or would you know? can you get the best deal by having more long-term, transparent partners, right, instead of just vendors, choosing to have a partner that is transparent so I can get to the total cost of ownership. So at the end of the day, it's really a choice. It's a choice of which strategy do you want to take. Do you want to play the market or do you want to play um, a game where you're trying to beat the market? You know, um, I love the philosophy of McDonald's. McDonald's number two in the world in supply chain management according to the Gartner rankings, right? Their goal with their suppliers is to beat the market. Beef isn't beef. Transportation's not transportation, right? It's not point A to point B. It's how do I optimize transportation? How do I drive the most value out of beef where I'm reducing my cost structure? They don't want to play the market. They get a better deal with highly strategic, highly collaborative, highly transparent partnerships. Okay, but it's not always feasible to utilize a pricing model, is it? So when do you want to use price versus a pricing model? 
That is a fantastic question because you are absolutely right. It takes a lot of work to build a pricing model. It takes a lot of trust to become transparent. And so the rule of thumb is that when something is strategic to you, you want to shift to a more vested business model that is underlying with a pricing model. If I'm going to use the market, right, I'm going to use a, a conventional RFP. If it truly is, as I like to say, if I'm buying a pen, it's a perfect place to have a price, right? So the more that something is standardized and is truly a commodity, you should be using a price. If you've got lots of different suppliers that can meet your needs, the issue, especially, Bob, in the 3PL sector is that many companies have over-commoditized the 3PL sector. So they're saying it is a commodity, but in reality, it can be a strategic weapon for the buyer. They're just buying it as a commodity. And so what they get is the commodity, right? I say green scorecards, red faces. You got what you paid for. Yeah, yeah, and and what you're describing here seems to be the same series of of relationships, the same series of steps that take you in the direction ultimately of a vested relationship. So once again, as you move toward a vested relationship, is it is it accurate to say that you're also moving toward uh, the best use of pricing models at that point? Absolutely, and that's why we highlight that in the white paper. We start off really talking about the difference between a price and a pricing model, when you would use a price versus a pricing model, how to do that. But it links back to our sourcing business model. Do we choose to want to treat what we're buying as a commodity, or do we choose to want to create value out of what we're buying. And if you look at McDonald's, they would choose that their supply chain is a strategic weapon and they have chosen to outsource. Therefore, they must have vested relationships if they're going to create value versus exchange value. You know, Bob, let me let me hang on that that comment right there. Exchange value versus create value. There's there's really three philosophies that we can have when we go to negotiate and work with a supplier, we can, the, the most common is what I'll call value exchange. I'm going to give you a dollar, you're going to store my product. I'm going to give you a dollar, you're going to ship my unit of goods that I have in your warehouse. That's value exchange, and we're going to negotiate for that. Another philosophy that we can have is value extraction. And this is when you typically have a big, big buyer, lots of power, and they're saying, gosh, I want to use my power, and I want to get, instead of a dollar, I want to pay 90 cents, right? So they're going to use a muscular value extraction approach. And the bigger we are as a company, the more we think that we can get a better deal by using our muscle, by using our leverage, by using the market, and competing a lot. If I use my competition, if we compete a lot, I'm going to get a better deal. And the third philosophy is value creation. And value creation would sit down with your partner and say, golly gee, we have a cost structure issue. Electricity is tripling, right? Gas fuel is, is going in a direction we don't want. Um, how can we solve our problem? And we're not going to bicker over the underlying nature of the fact that fuel increased. Let's figure out how to be more fuel efficient. Let's figure out how to optimize our transportation. So we're creating value. We're choosing a value creation model. And that's what Vested is. Vested is a value creation sourcing business model. 
And, and we have to really look at it that simply. Which philosophy do we want to have? Now let's align how we think about pricing. Are we going to use a price or are we going to use a pricing model? I want to take a moment for a message from Amber Road. Amber Road would like to remind you to check out their new brief featuring research from Gartner entitled Maximize Supplier Collaboration and Procurement Performance. A multitude of forces drives today's need for greater inbound supply chain visibility and improved supplier collaboration. Gartner research found that organizations that are not using supplier portals to connect trading partners lack the visibility to leverage opportunities to collaborate. This research brief investigates how supplier portals generate cost savings through automation and provides expert recommendations on how to leverage portals to increase trading partner collaboration and reduce supplier risk. It also contains a case study on how Leggett and Platt used Amber Road's supplier portal solution to improve visibility over origin and supplier operations, reduce cycle times, streamline broker operations, and reduce broker fees. You may download and view the research brief from Amber Road's website, www.amberroad.com. And now, back to the podcast. These three philosophies you described, do they track with the three types of pricing models that you talk about in your paper, the transaction-based, outcome-based, and investment-based, or is that a completely separate issue? No, they actually do. Well, yes and no. So a, a um, investment-based and an outcome-based typically should be using a pricing model. I would actually argue, um, and not just myself, but the wonderful work of Dr. Oliver Williamson at, at Nobel Prize winner um, from the University of California, Berkeley. Myself and, and Oliver Williamson would argue never, ever use a value extraction philosophy. It is just not smart. Oliver says the muscular approach to buying goods and services is myopic and inefficient. We not only use our suppliers, we use up our suppliers and discard them. And so if you look at we, we think we had a short-term win, but it's really going to come back and haunt us. Mm-hmm. So I would say never use value extraction, but then decide if you're going to use value exchange or you're going to use value creation. And if I'm going to use value creation, I need to create a pricing model. And the best pricing models happen when we have transparency and we're looking at total cost of ownership and best value. Okay. Another thing you talk about in the paper is margin matching. Would you explain what that is? Yes, um, fantastic question because a lot of people get confused on this. Think of margin matching as you and your supplier are in the same boat, right? We've agreed to create this pricing model, and if prices, if, if the cost of electricity or the cost of fuel rises, we're in the boat together. And so margin matching would say, you know, um, there was the, the market change, the, the, the underlying nature change. We're in the boat together. We're going to rise together and we're going to lower together. So we are, we're, we're, our margin, our pain and suffering is linked, shared risk, shared reward. So when you structure your pricing model, when you've created that with your business partner, you have certain triggers. 
So if a trigger happens and it's going to put one of the parties in in a worse position than the other, right? Because let's say in fuel, the the buyer takes the risk of the fuel, right? Okay. Um, and so now their profitability is hurt. Well, I want to actually hurt the profitability of the supplier too, even though they didn't have anything to do with that. I don't want the supplier winning at the buyer's expense. So I want our profitability, I want our pain and suffering to go to go together. I want our wins, um, the windfalls that we might have from fluctuation in the market to go together. So that's really what margin matching is. It's Think of it as being in the same boat and winning and losing together. And there's triggers in your pricing model so that one party isn't accidentally winning at the other party's expense. I see. Speaking of triggers, uh, what, do you th- what do you feel about incentives, pros and cons on building incentives into the pricing model? An absolute must. An absolute must because we want to um, we want to encourage and motivate the service provider to solve our business problem. And now, remember what I said earlier, Bob, is that if I'm focusing on solving the business problem, right? Those are tough things. How do you reduce my cost structure? I may have to make investments in order to do that. So I want to reward and incentivize my supplier that when they're solving my business problems, when they're achieving my outcomes, they will get an incentive, mm-hmm. right? I want to incentivize. I want to highly incentivize them to invest in solving my business problem. Yeah. Well, I guess one of the most common ones is early payment incentives, but I, I imagine that there are a lot more creative forms of incentives out there than that. Yes, the best incentives actually are those that are tied to a supplier achieving your outcome. You've got a business problem. You know, you've got X amount of inventory days on hand. What's a, what's a day of inventory on hand worth? How can the supplier help drive that down, right? So the best ones are actually tied to your business outcome because you win as the buyer and the supplier wins. Another A or B question that occurs to people in the area of compensation is fixed price versus cost plus. Where do you come down on that, or is it impossible to generalize? You know, they are, there's good things and bad things about both. And in the, the paper and in our classes that we teach, there's attributes, um, and a lot of it has to do with, with a company's risk. And so there's a nice little checklist, and you can go down and begin to ask yourself, does my business favor cost plus or does my business favor fixed price? Um, and, and it's not a yes or no answer. You'll go down and you'll go, oh, I've got 75% should say cost and 25% says I favor fixed. Um, and so it really is a matter of preference. And you have to understand that both have inherent flaws. And this is why we want to use a pricing model because often a model will use components of both. It's a hybrid. It has some cost, um, cost plus components and some fixed components. Um, so we're trying to bring out the best of both and to match that to the business needs versus have a it's either this or it's that. Certainly uh, there is always a possibility of supplier pricing fraud, but I guess transparency is a way to, to attack that issue, right? Absolutely. So, um, and that's another reason, you know, we, if we're nervous and we don't trust our supplier, transparency is, is going to allow us to check that, right? And it's going to build our trust. 
So I always laugh and tell people, if you don't trust a supplier and they don't trust you, become transparent because now you'll be forced to trust, right? Because you'll be looking at each other. But it's a leap of faith. You know, a lot of people just don't um, see the the power that transparency can bring, and they're afraid of it because they've not done it before. But I can tell you once people go there – they actually, if, if they go there and they create a pricing model, they realize that it really is fair. It's built so that both parties really understand the underlying cost structure. You're not trying to win at the other party's expense. You're not trying to negotiate to put more money in your pocket than in the supplier's pocket. You are trying to solve a business problem. So on this question of the performance-based model of pricing, you describe it in your paper as ranging from wildly successful to hugely disappointing. And I'm wondering what causes each of those to happen. Well, it's it's a very uh, interesting, and, and that was actually the original research question that the Air Force had when they came to the university is, why do some of these performance-based deals, why, why is this one so successful and these just don't work as well? Um, and it's because they're not structured well. Um, what we actually found is that the performance-based deals that were structured the best um, tended to have the attributes of vested. So one thing that a performance-based deal does is it looks at outcomes, and everybody's trying to move to outcomes. But if an outcome is something that is boundary-spanning and can't be done by just the supplier, right, you, if the supplier can't achieve that without the buyer – We need to mature to a vested relationship. So a lot of times people have too many expectations on a performance-based deal. They really wanted a vested deal, but they've structured a performance-based deal. They've shifted the risk to the supplier, and they've shifted uncontrollable risk to the supplier, and the supplier's failing. Um, A great example here, I was just talking to um, someone from the state of Washington, and they have the tunnel um, that they're trying to – uh, you know, the, the, the big Bertha tunnel drilling machine is stuck. Mm-hmm. And the supplier's now telling the, the state of Washington, well, how was I supposed to know these things were under the ground? This is your problem that you've put these things under the ground. Because there were some, anyway, you know, they're, they're in this back and forth pissing match, right? Yeah. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. And so that's exactly the point is in a performance-based deal, we're trying to achieve outcomes but if we push some uncontrollables to the supplier and the supplier starts to get underwater with how they make money, they're going to look at it from an economic perspective and go, I'm just going to take your, take your tunnel back. I'm done. The more I work for you, the more I lose money. So a lot of times performance-based deals are structured where, where risk is purposely shifted to the supplier. And if it's controllable risk, it'll be great. But if it's uncontrollable risk, you actually should never have done that. You probably should have moved to a vested model. Yeah. Now, if I might put on my cynics hat for a moment here and ask you, you know, for all of this starry-eyed talk of trust and vested relationships and mutual um, transparency and all of that, doesn't it all still come down to the dynamics of clout? I mean, is it possible to have these fulfilling relationships in which one of the parties is much smaller and much less powerful than the other? Absolutely. So um, I'll turn to McDonald's, right? So in their transportation space, they work with a quite a small supplier that has come in and helped them optimize their transportation. So you can have a big buyer and a small supplier. McDonald's needs that because the supplier is creating tremendous amounts of value for them. 
right? In in Oregon, we have a very small five million dollar tiny, you know, tiny business by most standards that does um, parts and 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 manufacturing of components for the aerospace industry, um, but very strategic components, and they've used the the philosophies with their uh, one of their customers, and they were able to double the size of their business with one customer based on the philosophies. Because now, instead of that buyer saying, well, I'm going to go to China to get that part, you know, the supplier, the little guy in Oregon who didn't have a chance at competing in the market is now saying, I'll compete on value. Let's understand what value is. It could be turn time. It could be inventory. It could be reliability. My part lasts three times longer than the China's China part. So you, you know, you could go, yes, you could go buy two China parts by the time you could have bought one of mine. So by really becoming transparent and looking at the problem, he can now take that data and show that his, his part is going to create way more value. And he may even take risk and say, I'll sell you my part for the same price as you would get in China. However, when it performs... I'm going to get a premium for my performance of my part. And so it it can happen, and it just really depends on if the buyer and the supplier choose to want to have a value creation philosophy. So pricing models and sourcing business models go hand in hand. Is it catching on beyond some of the best practices that you just cited, beyond a handful of companies, this this whole creative approach to pricing models? Um, I, I do think it is, and I think it is for a couple of reasons. One, if you just look at the number of people who are coming to our classes at the University of Tennessee, we have 127 companies that have sent one or more people to our courses. Um, today, uh, as of our last registration, we have 327 people who have taken one or more of our classes. So we are starting to see people become very interested in this. Um, you know, and so it, it takes a while. It's a mindset shift, right? As you said, you know, moving from the market and a price to wanting to choose to have a partnership um, and build a, a transparent pricing model, that's a different way to look at business. And we're not always comfortable with that. We may even have, in Dell's case, right? In Dell, Dell Genco, one of our great case studies, um, Dell had a corporate policy every dollar every year. So for them to create a vested relationship with Genco, they had to go and get a waiver on a corporate policy. So you know what? They did, and it dropped millions and millions of dollars to their bottom line as well as to Genco's because they moved from a value exchange model to a value creation model. Yeah. So much more to be said on this subject, and indeed, I want to uh, link to the paper uh, on the uh, show notes for this uh, for this podcast. It is called Unpacking Pricing Models, Make You Get What You Pay For Real for Business Relationships from the University of Tennessee Graduate and Executive Education. Kate Fatasic, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm glad to be able to share some of our work. We'd like to thank Amber Road for sponsoring this podcast. Amber Road Solutions use a combination of enterprise class software, intelligent trade content, and a global trade network that connects supply chain participants such as importers, exporters, freight forwarders, customs brokers, and transportation carriers. 
To learn more, please visit www.amberroad.com or email solutions at amberroad.com. Well, that was my conversation with Kate Vitasic of the University of Tennessee. Check out her white paper on unpacking pricing models. There's a link in the show notes to this episode. Hope you enjoy the show. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.